Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Gateway brought to you by the Northern Illinois University College of Business where your future is without boundaries and our approach is to. I am joined as always with my incredible co-host Dr. Biagio Palese. Hello Biagio! Ciao a tutti! Welcome, welcome to another great episode. For this episode, Black Box Algorithms. The Gateway will explore the unknown world of artificial intelligence while contemplating the ethical and social implications of utilizing technologies we don't fully understand. To help us navigate this black mirror of existence, The Gateway is excited to welcome Dr. Amin Havidin. Amin is currently an assistant professor of information systems with Northern Illinois University. He received a PhD in business analytics in 2019 at the University of Iowa. With a background in engineering, Amin enjoys research and teaching at the intersection of applied computing and business. His research interests are in business analytics, machine learning, deep learning applications, and spatial big data analytics. His work has resulted in numerous top-tier journal publications in addition to several presentations and proceedings in highly selective conferences. Amin, welcome to The Gateway. It's so wonderful to have you today. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for your patience. Oh, of course, of course. We're, we're excited to talk to you about, uh, about a bunch of different things within AI, generative AI, all of that good stuff. But before we get into that stuff, how, how'd you get to where you are right at, right at the beginning, like always? Uh, so I uh, went to college first in Iran. I'm from Iran. So when I was in Iran, you have to pick your college major before you are admitted. So I picked the program that I was going in and I, was, I wasn't I was sure which one. Then my dad, a bunch of other people told me, computers are big in the future, go to that, go that route. That was probably the best advice of century. So I followed that. Uh, so I did information technology engineering in Iran and did master of information technology engineering in Iran and then did a PhD in business analytics at University of Iowa. And then uh, through a few other paths, I got here to NIU, which I'm very happy at. So I absolutely love the idea of this brilliant uh, professor, the student going through the, the Iran uh, educational system, and then ending up in Iowa. That that had to be a very similar experience for I know. You. Uh, even people uh, in Iowa City would, first thing they would ask, why Iowa? <laughs> I would say, I mean, they accepted me, and also it looks like a pretty good program. It was a, it was a good uh, University of Iowa is like, uh, uh, like a very high quality school. Yeah. I, uh, it's of course, for many people, right, right. <laughs> enter Iowa City. It seems like uh, I, nothing against Iowa, nothing against Iowa, not at all. It seems like an oasis within uh, a very sparsely populated state. 
and someone coming from from your background probably has a, a unique perspective of oasis and and what that really means in in reality so well, we, yeah yeah I came from a very densely populated city and i was like okay there's a place to park everywhere which is wonderful that's that's great so then you you went in and you started doing uh business analytics within your phd and all of that stuff and and now you're here kind of diving deeper into that and exploring all of this world of AI and artificial intelligence, all of that stuff. What what's what's pulling your interest right now? Where are you kind of going as everything's changing in, in literally this last six months to a year? What 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 from your perspective is really pulling your interest? That yeah, that's a good way of describing what's happening. But when I started uh, even though my degree says business administration, but uh, my advisor and uh, people in my program mostly had computer science background, like myself, and that that was a draw for me. And for to that program, while we were there, I watched some people from doing traditional computer science research, which is basically find they were because they were in business school, they would do applied computing, which is basically solve. Uh, business problems using computer uh, algorithms and other computer technology in general, not AI, in general computer technology. I watched them uh, formulating real world problems, proposing algorithms to solve them and writing papers about them. I watched them go from that into basically everyone doing some version of deep learning. Over, like I saw in 2014, there was some traditional research. There were people doing linear programming. There were people doing uh, algorithms research. There were people who were doing data mining. By the time I left, everyone was writing papers about deep learning. They were probably, they most of them had kept the topics that they had. They were just solving every problem they were formulating with deep learning. Now, I mean, can you give us just an elementary definition of of deep learning? I, I feel like this specific area of our world right now, there's a lot of jargon and terms and everyone uses them as synonyms and interchangeable, but really each one of these different terms has a different meaning. So when we're talking of deep learning and that transition, what are you can you identify what that really means for us? So uh, deep learning is a uh, advanced variant of artificial neural networks. Artificial neural networks were inspired, they don't copy, they were inspired by biological processes of the brain at the time they thought that's how brain worked. But it ended up being uh, a function estimator. Essentially, all of them are function estimator. Basically, you have some values that should can be mapped to a target variable. And uh, you have you can develop estimators that can guess how these are mapped. And it turns out artificial neural networks are universal estimators, meaning any type of map, any type of mapping from the variable space to the target variable, they can fit it. They can learn. So that's what people mean when they say they can learn any pattern. But not every network can do that, you have to, there are tools, parameters within the network that you can adjust that, that gives it more or less flexibility to fit complicated patterns. And it seems like uh, uh, when we call something deep, uh, in my opinion, deep networks are the ones that have uh, the ability to uh, capture the most complica complicated patterns, learn the most complicated patterns. 
and map from the variable space to the target variable space. This is that can be used for prediction. The reason it's called deep is because there's a concept of layers, which is basically number of layers, the parameter in a neural network. Mm -hmm. you one uh, best way to allow model to learn more complicated things is to increase number of layers. And mm -hmm. they call that deep. So it's from one end to the end, it becomes deeper. So they call it deep learning. Got you. So when we're talking about artificial intelligence, algorithms, pattern recognition, it, it's all coming from tossing in large amounts of data into the, these yeah. these tools and then allowing that that tool, that software, that program, whatever, to identify the patterns in there and make predictions at that point. Are we now at the point that the tools we're using are able to identify patterns that we as humans cannot, like that we cannot understand. Are they, be is it better than us yes. at it? Yes. They have been, they have been. So first time it was very practically and decisively was shown was the object recognition competitions. Mm -hmm. I don't know the exact year, but sometime early 2010s, a team from Microsoft showed that they can their model can identify objects in an image uh, better than an average human. Now you might ask, images are labeled by humans, how do they measure it? But uh, images are labeled by many, one image is labeled by many humans and uh, it's it basically a committee deciding what's in it. A committee always performs better than an individual. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they are not as good as those committees, quote unquote, that were uh, flagging the objects in the image, but they're better than each individual person compared to their committee. So, so that's one application, but uh, that I don't know of any other application, but this just shows that they can be. This mm -hmm. is the concept that the proposition that says they can never be as good as humans, that's now rejected based on that. Right. So where I then start to, wonder and this gets into more of the the human and the, and the societal impact of it is if we have algorithms if we have tools if we have ai that can do things better than us and we're starting to allow these systems to help us make decisions to predict certain things to help identify cancer and and be better than a human at it is there a point when there's going to be decisions made and we don't understand why it was made and we just have to go on faith and just trust that this system is giving us the correct answer because it's so complex? Yes. So that is the main issue with uh, any variant of the neural network ecosystem and uh, mainly bigger issue for deep learning models. So uh, you mentioned some decisions, for example, diagnosing cancer. Mm -hmm. In uh, So it, there are many applications that all we care about is accuracy, like diagnosing right. cancer. That's all we care about. But there are other situations where decisions that are being made, they need to be made by an accountable party. For example, uh, we have uh, we have seen uh, governments use in the United States use 
uh, neural networks to make bail decisions, to make uh, uh, other very important decisions, all of which require, even when a human, when a judge makes that decision, we have processes, we have systems that hold them to account. If they make a decision that is uh, obviously wrong, another judge could overrule that. But uh, when you, and that person can explain why they made that decision. The judge can tell us why they denied bail or granted bail. However, not only uh, a deep network has neither of these things. They, 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 are, they cannot be held to account, obviously, because what are the consequences? Putting them in jail or firing them? They don't care. Right. Uh, the second one is they can't explain themselves. Not only they can't explain themselves, no one can explain them. And it's not just a matter of complexity. I understand these are, there are two dimensions for them not being explained or uh, uh, not interpretable. One is they are basically not readable. So if you, earlier I mentioned, these are just function estimators, right? So they're basically one equation with many inputs and some outputs. So they take some numbers and return some numbers. So you can read this equation, you can write this down, but it would be meaningless because it would be very overwhelming to try and make sense of it because it could be a simple model could be pages and pages of equations with symbols that do not have real world meaning. So it's basically unreadable. Let's say you are uh, equation reading genius and you read this whole thing and you were able to somehow connect every parameter in this 50-page uh, equation to a real-world meaning. It doesn't even matter because the process this equation was built was random, was stochastic. It's a process that that's how all, that's the current technology. That's how we build all uh, neural networks. We start with random values in the weights. Weights are the ones that we are learning basically some coefficient somewhere. We start with random ones and we change them a little and then measure the fit. And we continue doing that uh, until the fit is better. So the more you do this, you will your model will fit the data better. So you can take the same data, train two models, end up with completely different equations and they will perform the same. So even if you make sense of reading one, the other one is completely different. Which one is the right one? So the problem is by design. Even if we learn how to interpret these equations that we obtained, it doesn't mean much. So I mean, that is the issue. That makes I mean, me feel you. really good. <laughs> Just saying real fast. Great. So <laughs> sorry, Biagio, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, but no, no, no. as we're there, we're like, oh, great. Awesome. This is this is going to be fun. <laughs> this is perfect when humans are given tools and uh, abilities that we don't understand and we can't even identify and it's a problem, but we're just going to move forward <laughs> with it. Sorry. Okay. Go ahead, Biagio. <laughs> no, no, no. It's all good. I, I think, uh, again, it's uh, I want to thank Amin for coming because I, I think he brings to the table a very unique perspective as, you know, as a computer science background but computer science embed, embedded in in a business school and and again many times when when i talk to computer scientists they always say oh but i was able to increase the accuracy by i don't know two percent and that's yeah. my contribution and that's how i you know i publish my paper because i make it better by that much but many of these times those accuracy are 
not translating with a correct assessment for what that implies in you know decision making for humans so uh i i mean i have a limited i'm not i don't think i have that a technical background as i mean but in my experience with text mining for example in topic modeling uh they they use some metrics to assess you know the accuracy of the the models and they say like for example perplexity or or something like that right and and those are great and help me to identify which model is the best but then how does that translate in when you know a human is is when you compare to what a human does in order to make a decision and and to me that's that was a disconnect and um and so and so I, i was wondering if in your experience when you assess those those algorithm that you build or that you play with, what is what is your way to define a metric to say, hey, this model is, is, is that just purely accuracy or statistical accuracy or is is you trying to find ways to make it uh, more un, human interpretable, those results or more uh, human actionable? Because you are in a business school. I know if you were just pure computer science, you would say, hey, okay, I yeah, think it's better. Fun. I think it shouldn't matter which college you are. I think uh, computer scientists should also think about uh, the implication of whether the model, uh, like the implication of their contribution in the real world. I think that's, I understand there is uh, an aspect to science where you say curiosity for its own sake, but this is not a hard science. This is mixed with technology. So you are pitching something to society and you have to evaluate it in the in that context. So accuracy, I think, is uh, a necessary measure. We always, always have to measure accuracy, but by all means, it's not all we should consider. And unfortunately, what the dominant view, dominant uh, approaches in computer science research is you just report accuracy. And if you are tiny percentage better, that's good. Which, uh, like, if you look at the variation in accuracy in training every model, that variation is larger than the many contributions that come in. So if you just change one parameter, your your, uh, accuracy might change by 5%, but the improvement this paper is proposing is half a percent. And uh, it's really not, uh, doesn't seem that productive and it's missing the entire part that what does this mean in the, in the context of the society here or in the context of the application domain that is being proposed to, which has been a concern from the beginning. So there is a group, there is a wave, there is a community of researchers that are promoting interpretability as a evaluation criteria for the contributions, not just accuracy. So the uh, I don't think it was this year. I think it was 2021. The winner of the AAAI award, which is the highest honor in artificial intelligence, it's like a million dollar award. So they picked that value, the million dollars, so that it matches the Turing award and the Nobel Prize. So they intentionally did that. And AAAI... Association for Advancement of Artificial Intelligence is the highest, uh, largest community of scientists in AI. So it was given to Dr. Cynthia Rudin, who is the pioneer in asking everyone never to use deep learning and use interpretable models instead. 
So that's what she's promoting. And there is a following and there is a community that she's a part of that are uh, trying to promote interpretability, but it's not by any means the mainstream one. The mainstream one, as I mentioned, I watched people go, go, go from developing simple algorithms and like, you know, analyzing how fast they are or how slow they are or how much memory they use, going straight to deep learning, completely forgetting about cost of training, cost of hardware, all of that and going into, oh, this works. That's all, We that's not, and there have been people that have been saying that that's not science, that's engineering, which I agree with. Science uh, was when someone proved that neural networks are universal estimators, that was science. After that, all of that has been playing with this model and making it better and finding what configuration improves it. And that's why they resisted until very recently giving Turing Award to the inventors of the training algorithm. And when that was given, people were upset that, oh, you conceded the fight that this wasn't science, this was engineering. So, uh, I mean, when, when you're talking about that, I, I take it from a different perspective that it's almost fairly similar to the debate of creating art using technology. So you're no longer, you know, if, if I'm going on and I'm using Photoshop to create a beautiful picture, it's no longer art because you didn't take that, you didn't capture it that way. You literally just put the things together and said, here you go. It's very similar to that kind of a, of a debate of saying, we're not looking at the natural science anymore. We're just looking at, hey, we have this tool and we're popping out way more information and we're just playing with it instead of actually looking at that is that kind of another way to look at it uh, yeah i i agree with that so okay. let's say when you but uh, when you create an art with photoshop i i could respect that and say this is a photoshop art but mm -hmm. i would call that painting right you know what I mean? but in with uh if you develop it took us almost 50 years to develop a deep learning model that could uh, uh, trans could hear the voice and transcribe it. Mm -hmm. Voice to uh, uh, voice recognition. Yes, voice yeah. recognition. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So Speech it took us that much, but uh, the theories were there. The theories were invented very early. The theories, and then the way it was being trained or trained, quote unquote, or built. Those are all the advancements, all the um, uh, contributions were towards that. Which type of configuration works best to get the voice? Which type of setup? So these models are very flexible, gives you a lot of tools to how you set them up. And there's infinite ways you can set them up. And it just seems like we're playing with how to set it up for a specific application and writing papers about that and calling mm -hmm. that a contribution, which is great. But I thought startups were going to do that. Mm. Uh, focus on making uh, coming up with something that is uh, better, which is something that would be interpretable. That's the only thing missing. What's missing is not which applications we can uh, apply this to. The industry can do that. Industry can tell us which applications is for space and how is that that can be done. But our job is to say, okay, here's an alternative that has the same capabilities, but is interpretable. It's readable. So within all of all of this, I mean, I'm I'm associating this very similar to it, the the combustion engine, 
like truly like okay we created it we had the model a all of that stuff and we were going three miles an hour and everyone's fine and then we started to develop that way faster and now we're able to go 320 miles but somewhere in there due to accidents death crashes all of that stuff we as a society said you know what the normal human should only be able to do 60 miles an hour on the highway 65 whatever that is yeah. are we going to have um for lack of a better term a license so certain governments can use certain deep learning tools um or certain professionals in there you know like dot you truly like doctors you you can go in and do surgery you can go in and use this deep model but normal humans should not because you don't understand the impact that it could make like do we need to treat this more as kind of a, a, a Again, lack of a weapon. Like, can this do damage if we're not careful with it? I guess. And sorry, Biagio, I'm I'm swear I'm done after this. Oh, it can totally do damage. Yes, yes. And uh, there are experts that are, uh, uh, you know, more qualified to talk about this. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Hinton has talked about this. He's the he's the person who invented the training algorithm. Got recently got the uh, Turing Award. Uh, so he has talked about it. Yeah, it can absolutely be abused, and there are ways we know it can be abused and be harmful, and there are many ways that we don't know how it can be harmful, but it totally can be. And I am all for preventing. I'm all for preventing the harms. I don't know how. I don't know. Uh, I think interpretability is a huge barrier in preventing abuse. Uh, and. Uh, it's not like surgery, you know, it's not like driving. Those happen in physical world. This happens in digital world and the code is out. The code is out. It's available to everyone and the knowledge to use it is out. It's available to everyone. How are you gonna re regulate people doing it on their personal disconnected computers? Uh, so I, I am all for stopping abuse, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know how. And I think if we had interpretable models, we could at least identify models that are designed to be abused, uh, abusing, abusive. We could, but right now we can't. I think that's that's a barrier. So we heard when Biagio invited uh, uh, Will Johnson for the colloquium, we had this come, he kept mentioning guardrails. Do you remember that, right? So he kept mentioning guardrails for language models, meaning so these language models not shockingly make things up because they're optimized to look like an actual human, uh, sound like an actual human, and you get what you optimize for. You uh, optimize to be like more like a human, you will make things up sometimes because we, we humans do. So, but uh, if you are going to go verify everything that the language model says, you are going to have to see which one is true, which one is made up, then what is the point of using a language model? You will do the research on your own. If you're not going to do that, then you're susceptible for, to abuse. If you have this, and if this was interpretable, we could look into it and somehow find out whether this model is going to make things up about a certain topic or not. Or this model is likely less likely to make things up than the other one, even though they have performed exactly the same so far but it's less likely, but we don't have that information. And I don't know without that information, how, how could you develop strategies or regulation to prevent abuse?
Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I kind of lost the, the exact question that I have in mind, but but some of the, you know, the, the conversation that we are going, and I did, did, did clearly remember the Gerdrail concept uh, and an example. I think well, one of the issue is that right now, right? So OpenAI released ChatGPT and uh, GPT and everybody like start going crazy because before it wasn't that widely used by people and people start seeing what it's capable of and say, oh, I can save so much money doing this. I, it can replace, you know, some of those uh, tedious jobs that we don't like to do. And that's awesome because it yeah. increases efficiency and, and effectiveness many of the times, right? But then there are so many other companies that want to do the same, want to keep releasing models just because, I don't know, it increases the accuracy of the tiny bit. It's, it's kind of like uh, a run of who's going to release the next cool things that everybody can adopt so we can become millionaire. And, and that's the only focus, right? Yeah. But then on the other side, there is one of the concepts that, I mean, again, it's not my expertise, but uh, I remember my advisor wanted one of his PhD to work on it. There was algorithmic transparency right mm -hmm. uh, because there is again if you just rush in to put out something and those models are based uh, i don't know optimized on some specific data but there is no transparency of what data they've been used what time parameters they've been used to to build them then there is no transparency of where these results are coming from and yeah. so so that's kind of like my concern and and and, and there's where like I'm wondering okay what do what kind of progress have we made or what kind of progress do we need to make in you know the transparency aspect of this and I don't know you probably know more than me I'm just uh I uh well I I completely completely agree with you that that is necessary and I, uh, as far as I know, not enough progress. And what one uh, one good thing that come out, can come out of this popularity, though, is uh, the uh, ChatGPT CEO went to Congress recently, and he did mention that the uh, regulation is good. He didn't say what, mm -hmm. but he said it's good. Let's do it. And yeah. you know, they're going to ask him to tell them how to regulate it. Well, because uh, you know, who is uh, you know, Dick Durbin gonna ask. Uh, so, but the uh, coming out, like this discussion about regulation and guardrails, I think that would be beneficial for people trying to make progress in the algorithm transparency front a little bit more. Do, do, you, do you think though think that, good. do you think though that they are, kind of trying to do that garland already when they say like you know you have three different settings when you use them like they say like more creative more precise yeah. something like that do you think that that's kind of like their way to say like okay if i'm more precise you probably have already some garland reducing i mean i don't know i, I think I, so possibly yeah. you know these are especially so bing has microsoft has yeah yeah, uh, yeah. What is that uh, the setting to make it creative? Bing AI, yeah. But uh, that's a proprietary tool. I don't know how we don't know how they did it, but based on the fundamentals that we know, uh, it still it can never guarantee that it won't make things up, even in the precise setting. So in the precise setting, it probably will not produce uh, enough text just to be conservative. Uh, for example, maybe this is what I'm guessing they could do to make it precise. 
they would only produce text that they have seen mm. or with like a, just a very uh, small uh, permission to vary from the text that they have seen before. In creative mode, they would give full uh, autonomy to the model to use the words and make uh, generate brand new sentences. But, yeah. but that's my guess, but it's proprietary. And they absolutely are trying. They know that if they want to keep government out of their business, they have to be able to demonstrate to uh, the society that this they can prevent abuse. Uh, I was mentioning in your ideas, Bing AI is actually not on ChatGPT, but I, I I was curious about it because I'm not sure it was from the very beginning. The only thing I've noticed is that if you put more creative, yeah. then it made up completely references. Mm -hmm. And then you need to be careful and say, hey, let me go check wow. if that's real article or whatever it is, the source, right? When you put more precise, uh, I mean, I think it, I mean, based on what I tried, it's always uh, an exist uh, a reference that is there. Now you have always mm -hmm. to read the paper or whatever it is to make sure that it's cited in the appropriate way and it is actually, you know, interpreting the concept correctly. But but I think at least on that point of view, is not disseminating because the other yeah. threat of this is you know fake news, fake information, and misinformation. Right? That's that's yeah. another big topic. So. Yeah, I, I so yeah, I that's totally expected. Yeah, the the settings, whatever output you're getting from each of those settings, that makes total sense. And it seems like yes, they did try something like that, but I I don't think that's enough. I don't think that's good enough because uh, first of all, that setting is available. Second of all, even in the most precise one, there's no guarantee, and we and, won't and, know until there we is no guarantee the text that is written. And there is no guarantee that the person that reads or consumes that information goes back and say, oh, let me go check the, oh, you know, no. the reference of that. I right? would argue that it's Gitter's guarantee that they won't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we know humans. <laughs> so, so when I'm hearing all of this stuff and I, I'm seeing the, the potential of, what is it? black box algorithms becoming yeah. a, a much larger part of our society it very quickly it, from my perspective brings science fiction into a a very real world and and movies that come to mind like minority report and using precogs and all of that stuff that's basically what we're doing is saying hey we we have this system whatever it is whether it's a, a make-believe group of people in a pool seeing yeah. things or it's an algorithm that we've developed but if we get further far enough away and we as a society get comfortable with it which is going to happen right now it seems new and it's and it's a little like we're, we're looking at everything but when I start to realize my car can drive itself and I don't care how it's making a decision, but every one of my experiences results in me not having a car crash, yeah. I'm going to just start to try. I'm just naturally going to say, hey, when I drive, I might get in a car accident, but when they drive, it doesn't. Yeah. We're, we're going to get more immune to this stuff. At some point, 
will it just be better for us as a society to trust these and use every bit of deep learning as possible because we're going to get better answers and we're going to get right answers and it's going to save lives and it's going to make life better and all of that stuff, even if there is no feasible human way to understand how it is. Um, and then what happens if the power goes out? <laughs> like, like, you, you know, like truly, and, and I'm not talking about like the lights, which I'm saying that we don't have that electricity anymore to utilize those things and now we drop back to a, a, the age of caveman and you because, have <laughs> right and and we don't have those skills right like we haven't thought of how to do this stuff because we've just relied on the computers yeah. I, I mean people say that all the time about so i don't remember phone numbers anymore because i got a cell phone like and that's a very little thing but that what happens when we yeah. don't know how to do you know, cancer treatment anymore because we trust the robots to do it. You, you know, like, is, is that a bad thing? But, or is that better to just say, let's go with it because in the meantime, we're saving more life, you know, like yeah. that's the stuff that I legitimately think about at night and maybe not sleep as much as I should. So, so I hear two questions there. The first <laughs> you asked, uh, is that, are the deep models going to get Good enough at what they do that we're going to stop about stop caring about interpretability yeah okay that's entirely possible that's probably what's going to happen because as i mentioned based on how i see this they are by design not interpretable so we're never going to interpret these right. and i don't see any other uh alternative emerging that is as accurate and as uh uh and interpretable Okay, so that's probably what's going to happen. That's what the tech industry is telling us. Tech industry is telling us this is going to be so good that it's going to be negligible when it makes things up or it's going to be negligible when it has a misdiagnosis. So it's going to be worth it. And that's literally what uh, Tesla CEO Elon Musk says. It says, even if we don't understand how this drives, it's going to be safer. So it would be a logical choice for you. Right. So that's probably what's going to happen. I hope not. I uh, have deep concerns about deep learning, but uh, if it is, if uh, it seems like that's where it's going. The second question was, uh, what does reliance on this mean for us in the long run? Yeah. So reliance on that, yes, means just not remembering phone numbers. Exactly similar. I I can't see anything else. I don't know. So. The only phone number I remember is my dad's cell phone number because he was the only one with a cell phone uh, for a long time. The only one to get you out of jail. I mean, I know, I know exactly <laughs> where you're like, that's the number I need. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, right now I know my wife's phone number too because I need to enter that in forms when I, yeah. <laughs> nice save. I mean, <laughs> she's the love of your life and you could not not talk no, to her. I have, for I have her number saved here. I would I wouldn't need to remember it, but I would need to remember it to enter in like tax forms <laughs> and things like that because I'm irresponsible. That's my part. But uh yes, uh, I am I think like I'm just gonna talk about one example and then see what Biagio thinks about the second question. So uh driving, I think. People are going to let you, uh, government is going to let you use your self-driving car when it uh, is good enough and not drive and probably take a nap. But I think government is still going to require someone with a driver's license be in the car. 
at all times. You will, you will have to get it. Everyone will still have to get driver's license, but they won't drive as much. So it, it's not gonna matter much because they're gonna be terrible drivers when they need to take over. They're already, I, my opinion there, Illinois drivers are not that good. They're better than Wisconsin and Iowa drivers, but still not good enough for me. But it's, yeah, that's how it's gonna be. But I don't know, I don't think it's within my expertise to say what it will mean for society, the reliance on deep learning technologies would mean to society in longer term. I, uh, I'm very curious what Biagio thinks. No, I, I, I mean, I, I think I agree with you in the sense that it's going to become, if, if it becomes to the point where majority of the cars has that functionality at that accessible yeah. price, right? Because right now it's not everybody can afford it. But if it becomes so spread out, definitely it's going to be some people that rely on it 100%. Just because like, okay, why do I need to focus on a long drive when I can just, you know, take a nap and yeah. go to Louisiana and, you know, whatever I want, right? Exactly. So, and if you, again, and truly like at times it's better than human because AI doesn't, doesn't drink or it doesn't get tired or stuff like that, right? So it has some benefit and it's drawbacks, of course. But I think what is coming out of this conversation and it's very underestimated is, and sometimes uh, totally ignored, is the importance of how do we use technology, right? And you, know, you can rely on them, of course, but you need to be vigilant and you need to understand what is it, it is the real impact they can have on your daily life, on your daily task and uh, how can affect others, right? Uh, so it's, uh, it's very important that like the, how do we use it, especially because it's so powerful and potentially can disrupt things is, yeah. is what it needs to, to, to be like stressed out even more. And, you know, younger generation born digital, like they have a lot of technology in their hands since they are very young. And I don't think they understand the power. They, I don't think they understand the consequences of that. So that's to me is the scary part because, you know, my daughter might grow up with AI embedded in things and yeah. she uses it and she think, okay, that's, that's totally normal, right? It's part of our life. But then she doesn't understand the power. She doesn't understand the consequences. And I think that's, the, that's yeah. what it, it can make damage is because people rely and trust 100% close, close their eyes and say, hey, it's just like drinking water. And although you shouldn't trust always drinking water if you're outdoor, uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's a different level of, uh, you know, approach and use to this technology for sure. Yeah. So that's kind of like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree hundred percent. I think uh, what I, the way I see it, I see two types of technologies. So, I, I hear this is a common thing, parents not allowing their kids to use calculators. Uh, I mean, back when I was growing up, calculator was the high-tech thing. Not allowing to use a calculator because it's brain work. So we ride a bicycle, we drive a car for transportation because it's better than legs. Uh, but calculator is better than uh, me doing multiplication, so for sure, but there's a benefit for me to not delegating that brain work to uh, technology. And uh, deep learning is taking more, is taking over 
brain skills that we didn't think that we would ever have to, uh, uh, we would ever automate. We thought that, yeah, that's, uh, the, the, our brain work was required forever. But I think the question that Ross asked second is worth considering because it says, is it worth losing those brain skills? Is all of these, are all of these conveniences worth losing all of those brain skills? Because we thought as a kid, uh, uh, the calculator wasn't worth for me not learning to multiply. And now is it worth we lose a real surgeon, a human surgeon, losing a human surgeon because there's a robot that can do it? I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think that's uh, kind of like, um very hard to answer the question and if we knew the answer probably would be somewhere else <laughs> but 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 uh, again another another thing another thing that we we underestimate or people that just like born with cell phone underestimate is how you communicate with technology right yeah. there before you had to write code it was like a big machine has to be in a room now you speak to them right yeah. they they seems like you don't even know if you have a camera off it could be me speaking for me but it's it's a computer, right? You can, it's conversational. Yeah. It's, it's just, uh, yeah, uh, like, it, I think I think it's always good to have those skills just in case, because you want to make sure that they are doing the right thing, right? They they can make you more efficient. So you're going to use the calculator rather than doing by ends. But if in case the right. calculator is giving you some kind of output that you are not sure about it, because you know how to do by end, you can still do it and verify. Although I'm, I'm sure there is not the majority of people, but that's what I will do if something is throwing me that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make much, it doesn't add up. But if I don't have that knowledge, hey, calculator is, is the law, is the Bible. So I'm gonna just follow along and then yeah. do whatever is, is saying, right? So that's, that's, again, the tricky part. Yeah, I think that's how it connects to the first question whether people will stop caring about whether it's a black box or not. Calculator is a black box. You know, we do trust it. It's literally a black box. And uh, if it works uh, good enough for long enough, we're gonna trust it. Yeah, I will concede. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in that comment there, I, I think that's a, a great place to wrap up this conversation. And I, and I hope that our conversations and, and the people listening to this uh, still keep having these, because if nothing else, uh, I, I think the exercise and the thought experiments that, that we do within this conversation are, are helpful and can only uh, help us see a, a potential future that could be absolutely amazing or um, could, could have much greater uh, <laughs> implications that we might not even be able to think about. So- Almost. You're right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, thank you so much for being here. This was a lovely conversation and, and I truly enjoyed it. And uh, again, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having thank me. Thank you. Uh, this is a lovely conversation as well. Thank you. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Gateway brought to you by NIU's College of Business. Please make sure to subscribe to The Gateway. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or 
wherever podcasts are found. And if you are so inclined, please feel free to give us those five-star ratings, which help allow us to continue to bring wonderful guests to the gateway. Thank you all for listening, and remember to love always the promise of tomorrow today.